Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Robbie Crabtree for our fundraising episode. Robbie spent the first seven years of his career as a trial lawyer in Dallas, Texas, where he tried 102 jury trials. He specialized in violent felonies like robberies and murders before moving into the special crimes unit focused on child abuse cases. During his 16 months in that unit, he tried cases of child sexual abuse, child physical abuse, and child death cases. During the final four years of his time as a trial lawyer, he also coached the national mock trial team at SMU Law School and taught trial advocacy. After seven years as a trial lawyer, he left the legal world behind to work in the tech industry. He first founded an edtech startup around public speaking for tech company executives and leadership that was acquired by OnDeck at the end of 2020. Since that acquisition, he's founded competitive storytelling and turned it into the premier storytelling practice for founders, CEOs, and other leaders inside of the tech and venture capital world. Over the past two years, Robbie has trained thousands of these leaders from startups all the way to large public companies to help them become world-class storytellers. Founders and CEOs that he's privately coached have raised over $575 million and been backed by the biggest VC funds in the world. His approach to storytelling and fundraising comes directly from his experience as a trial lawyer, which is why he's regularly asked to speak across the world on the subject. He's spoken at Stanford multiple times where he's addressed the funding gap for minority and female founders while providing a roadmap for how capital allocators and founders can change that dynamic. Robbie's the author of the upcoming book titled Competitive Storytelling, Raise Capital, Win Influence, and Shape the Future. I can't wait to chat with him and share his story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Robbie. Hey, Robbie. Hey, Erica. How are you? So how are we feeling after hearing that bio? It's always very uncomfortable to, <laughs> to listen to it, but you know, it's also kind of cool because it's uh, like a journey down memory lane in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I feel like you, of, I would say, of most people I interview, have the most kind of like windy path. Like it obviously being a lawyer contributes to what you're doing now and is part of your, your approach, but it's definitely like you know, where you started is not where you are. And you probably couldn't have guessed that. So sometimes it's not that way. We've had guests on before where they are like in one job for like over a decade and or they're still doing the thing they did out of school. So it's cool. We've got a lot to chat about. It has been a, a wild, windy journey. And there have been moments where as part of that journey, my father has told me this was the dumbest idea that I've ever had. And, uh, you know, to this day, I still actually agree with him on the most part. It just happened to work out. So uh, we, we joke and have a good relationship, but it has been a crazy journey. Yeah. What does your father do? What is his What is his idea of not dumb? Because I feel like sometimes parents that just aren't in your same industry just don't get it. It could be really cool. They just don't know. He worked his way up from a temporary position at an oil company and ended up becoming the VP of real estate for Baker Hughes, which at the time when he was working there was a Fortune 100 company. And so he was running a you know multi-billion dollar P&L as the the head of all that. And so he just worked his way up the corporate ladder. And to him, that made sense, especially his son, when his son became a lawyer, he, you know, parents get really proud about lawyer, doctor, you know, you you name the couple that are are the ones that they can brag about to all their friends. It's usually just lawyer and doctor. Those are like (laughs) the two. And maybe, maybe engineer, but like, that's it. Uh, Maybe. And and so anyways, when I, he was very proud of that. And when I left the the legal world behind, that's when he said that, but it was really because it was out of a place of love, right? Like, why would you jump into this crazy founder entrepreneur life. It's risky. It's scary. It's unknown. And he just didn't understand that. And, and it was from a place of love. And I always appreciate that. But, but luckily it worked out. It did work out. And I think with family members like that, I mean, I've had that too, where in the beginning it's like, wait, what? 
But then eventually they see that you actually do figure it out. And like a smart, competent, hardworking person in really industry, any industry can make it work. But yeah, it does take a little bit to get those parents and grandparents to come around. Cool. Well, before we get into the meat of the episode, I like to start every show with a bit of an icebreaker. You can take this question any direction you want. But what is something new that you've learned in this past week? And it doesn't have to be fundraising related. It can be about anything. I actually was reading a book today as it was, and it had the term neutral thinking. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. And I never thought about it in that way. And it was that we don't want to, like we get all this positivity, positive thinking, positive thinking. That's like the, the key to success, right? And this mental performance coach, he works with a lot of athletes and, and Russell Wilson is probably the most famous one that he is like very close with. Yeah. And his idea is neutral thinking where we just identify that the past is the past. We live in the present and we can build towards the future, but like we shouldn't let the past negative experiences or positive experiences inform how we feel right now because like those moments are over. I thought that was just a really beautiful way of staying grounded in the like being really present. And I had just never heard that term of art before. And as soon as it, as soon as I read it, it was that light bulb moment, which I thought was really cool. That's amazing. Who is the performance coach that wrote the book or that said this this line? Do you know who it is? So it's actually this book right here. Uh, it happens to be on my desk. It takes what it takes. Cool. So Trevor Moad is the uh, the guy who wrote it. And anyways, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really enlightening so far. That's awesome. Yeah. I think I'm someone where I struggle because I always want to be a positive thinker. And so much of that is actually projecting onto the future that good things will happen, but it takes you out of the present, like you're saying. I really like that. I think that's super interesting. Are you a big book reader? What's like your, and if you are, what do you like to read? What are your areas? I am a big book reader just because I am a nerd and like to learn. And I always have, I mean, like I remember when I was younger, I used to read the Redwall series, which is like a fantasy series with mice and badgers and all this sort of stuff about adventure and defending your homeland. And I, I remember like I would my parents would convince me to go to the dentist's office because as part of that, I would get to go to the Barnes and Noble that was right next door, get the newest Redwall book and sit down and start reading. And so like from a very early age, I've always just loved reading. And so what do I read? I mean, I read a lot of storytelling books, obviously, a lot of business books, biographies, but I was also a history major. So I read a lot of history as well. And then I also read a ton of fiction. Like I'm a big fiction reader, especially science fiction and fantasy because so much of what I do is world building and it's the the best place to see world building and narrative arcs and character development. So I typically am reading somewhere in the neighborhood of like five to eight books at any given time and just kind of like bounce between them depending on the mood that I'm in. That's amazing. I feel like I'm someone where I, I'm like you, where I would be convinced to go do things near the Barnes and Noble and like be bribed with buying a book exact same way. But I find now that I've gotten older and life is really busy, I struggle to prioritize reading unless I'm on a vacation. So like, do you have any tips or ways that you just bake it into your life? Is it like a before bed thing? Is it a, you just, it's such a passion, you would never give that up or sacrifice it. Like, how do you bake that in now? Because I mean, I'm like, I was like you as a kid, for sure. Obsessive, ridiculous, never found without a book. But now I'm like, I just have this long list of books I want to read, but I'm not really reading them. Yeah. So I still remember I skipped a day of class when the final Harry Potter came out just so I could sit and read it like no interruptions because I was terrified of getting spoilers from anybody. I was just like, no one's going to get in my way. That was that was a level of obsession. So I, I relate to what you're saying there. And the yeah. way, you know, the reality is I, I think when I was in the beginning of the entrepreneur journey, like I didn't read as much because I was so focused in like just grind and be productive. But what I found is a lot of my best work comes when I'm in that very creative side and I'm like pushing myself and, and experiencing new things, even if they don't like, you, you can't see a direct correlation to how that's going to apply to the work I do. Oftentimes that's where some of my best ideas come from. And so what I've learned is I have to create space to do that. I try to do a lot of it on the weekends, but I also refuse to take meetings before 10 a.m., on, and I'm on East Coast, so it's a little bit easier, I think, when you're on the East Coast because like the West Coast, 10 a.m. is, you know, 1 p.m. over on the West or East Coast. So lots has already gone on. But I don't take meetings before 10 so that I can spend 30 minutes to an hour every morning reading something that I think is interesting in that moment. So that's a little bit of how I've started to prioritize it over time. That's such a great tip. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I live on the West Coast now and I'm moving to the East Coast. 
And so I might copy you because I think that, yeah, right now I struggle with it. And then by the end of my day, I'm always just like grinding till the night and I don't have time. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for that tip. So let's get into your background. You know, you said you were a history major. You went to Haverford. You went to law school. Like walk me through at that time. Did you genuinely want to be a lawyer? And were you really excited about that path? Or was that just something that you thought you should do? You, you mentioned, you know, your father was excited about that. What was like your mindset around that time and deciding to go to law school after uh, Haverford? Yeah, there's two kind of pieces to that story. One is I was going to go into business and follow like my dad's footsteps. But at Haverford, it's a very small liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia. And there is no business major. There's an econ major, which econ at my school was very heavy in math. I did not like math. In fact, my senior year, I I took AP Spanish instead of AP Calculus. And as a result, when I went to my first year of college, I had to take calculus for econ. And so like I was taking calculus and econ and I was doing terrible in both. And it was the first time in my life that I had not done well in a class. And I was just like, this sucks. (laughs) And so I remember being miserable about it. And at the same time, the other piece of this is I'd always loved speaking. Like I did extemporaneous speech and debate in high school. I did a project when I was in sixth grade on propaganda in the media. Like what crazy six-year-old is doing a project on propaganda? Only me, I, I would imagine. And then I loved the West Wing. The West Wing was my favorite television show. Like it still is to this day. I think it's one of the most beautifully written shows. You can learn so much from it. But I remember looking at the people in the West Wing and being like, well, they're all lawyers, except for the president. The president was like an econ PhD. And I was like, that's not going to be me. So I'll be Sam Seaborn or I'll be Toby Ziegler. I'll be Josh Lyman. They're all lawyers. And so I had this crazy idea. Well, why don't I just convince my dad that I want to be a history major, which is always what I wanted to be because it's what I always loved studying. And I'll say like, hey, dad, I'm going to be a history major. I know that's not going to make you happy, but just hear me out. I'll go to law school because then I can be like my favorite characters on the West Wing. And that sold him on, okay, son, you can do this. And that's kind of what led to the lawyer thing. But it also aligned nicely because my mom for all my life had been like, Robbie, you love arguing. You should be a lawyer. And so when I said it to him, they were like, yeah, that makes sense. And you know, what parent isn't going to be happy with their son going to law school for like the first generation getting into law school? So it was a pretty easy sell. That's hilarious. You would be surprised how many people I speak to where what they wanted to do early in their 20s was based on their favorite TV characters. Like we've got a lot of like exactly the West Wings, the Grey's Anatomies that are just, oh yeah, I wanted to do that because that's all I saw. That's all I knew. That's actually hilarious. Okay. So you thought law school, that works. I can be like the TV characters. How was law school? And quick side note, Not sure if you're still interested in West Wing type shows, but Madam Secretary and Designated Survivor are both, I don't know if you've seen either, but they're both like that same level of like incredible dramatic political dramas, dramatic dramas, but they're amazing. I don't know if you've seen those, but just side note, you should watch if you haven't. I've seen Madam Secretary. I think they do a really good job. I'm really hoping for a reboot of West Wing at some point because I think we need some I think we need some optimism in yeah. in our country around politics. That would be a nice thing to see. Uh, but I haven't seen Designated Survivor, so I'll put that on the list. Because- oh my gosh, it's so good. But it's like binge worthy. So I watched it over like a holiday break. Oh my God, it's so good. Okay, so anyway, what we were saying was law school. So you're like, dad, I'm going to go to law school. How was it? How'd you like it? It was fine. Law school is really interesting because it teaches you how to learn. And I thought that was fascinating. Like it's hard to, people will tell you that and you don't really understand until you go into law school where like you're not learning facts or figures or anything. You're learning how to go and find answers, how to identify a problem, research it, find a solution, then apply it to your specific you know, situation that you're facing. And so I love that. I just didn't love law school, especially like where I went, they really pushed you to go corporate, corporate, corporate. And that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I played college baseball. I've always been very competitive. In fact, it's part of the reason why my company is called Competitive Storytelling. (laughs) But I wanted to compete. And I was like, most of these things that they're telling us to do, there's no competition aspect. You just like sit there and you write briefs and you research and it's really boring. So that's how I fell into mock trial when I was in law school. And that was the moment where I was like, this is it. Like, this is the cool stuff. I get to go in a courtroom. I get to argue. It's like me versus them. There's a clear winner, a clear loser this could be really fun. And it leaned into that like public speaking side that I always had kind of enjoyed uh, since, you know, 
high school and competing there. So that's when law school became fun. But that also meant like I didn't focus that much on a lot of the other law stuff. I just kind of focused on getting really good at this thing, which goes back to the whole obsession thing, which, you know, I think most of us probably in this world, in this entrepreneur venture world all have. And then law school was really fun. So I enjoyed the mock trial side. I enjoyed the learning side, but it was, uh, it was more a means to an end. Like I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't love being in law school itself. Yeah, it's weird how sometimes these like prep schools, like these grad schools, like I think of like being, you know, in medical school or being in law school, the training itself isn't always indicative of the thing you're doing. You know, like studying and memorizing biology isn't indicative of being a good surgeon. Just like, you know, teaching you how to think maybe helps you with law school, but it's not like you're in the actual courtroom. So sometimes it can be difficult even in those grad schools to know if it makes sense. And I have a lot of friends I know who've been in it and they're like, Eh, is this what it is? I don't know if I like it. But it sounds like you found that unlock, which was that that trial stuff. And then you were in the courtroom for many, many years. How was that experience? I mean, obviously, you tried some really, really emotional, traumatic, difficult cases. Like, What was that like for you over the course of that time? And what made you ultimately decide to leave and join the world of tech? I loved being a trial lawyer. I thought the job was unbelievable. Uh, the people I worked with were brilliant the opportunities given to me to try really meaningful cases at a very, very early age. I mean, I think I tried my first murder when I was my, like I I got it when I was in my third year as a lawyer and I actually tried it in my fourth year, which is crazy to think about like how quickly that was given to me. And so I loved the work. I loved being a trial lawyer. The hours were God awful. The pay was even worse for the amount of hours that you work because you're working for the government. They're just, you know, that's why most people don't stick around. Most people, you know, are there for a year, two years, and then they typically leave. And I always had this idea that I wanted to try a hundred because I had this number in my mind that I knew a hundred would put me in the top 1% of 1% of all lawyers. And I was like, cool, if I can hit that, like I can leverage that into a skill set somewhere else. And if you like go down my background, like as a history major, all the things I love, I've always loved like superheroes. I've always loved movies like Gladiator and you know, that type of genre where it's really about trying to do something for others and standing up for those who can't. And being a trial lawyer, especially a prosecutor, which is what I was for the first hundred, I tried two on the defense side when I left being a prosecutor. But those first hundred, I mean, it was super, super meaningful. And I look back really fondly on that. It also was incredibly traumatic to live in that world. It's, uh, something that's really challenging a lot of times to, to talk about just because the job of a prosecutor is to take on the pain and the emotion of the victim or the victim's family, oftentimes both, and to be able to transfer that to the jury and to transfer it to, to the jury in such a way that there's no other outcome but guilty and then there's no other outcome but the punishment that you're asking for. And so you really end up like absorbing all of that trauma. And and when I, especially when I was a child abuse prosecutor, I mean, I I was handling 200 child abuse cases and and I don't think people realize how dark a lot of the world is, but you do when you do that work. And it just, it really does take a a toll on you, even though it's incredibly meaningful. And so to get to your your question about like why, why I left being a trial lawyer, because I love the work that I did. Something happened as I got later in my career there, especially in child abuse, I would try around 10 to 15 cases a year when I was in felony and trying those level cases. Those cases would take about a week, a week and a half to try. And it would be a year process to get to that point. And I would go into a courtroom and I would try that case. And a week and a half later, I'd win the case. Like I didn't lose a child abuse case. I I won every child abuse case I tried. And when I would win, the family was super thankful. They'd break down, they'd cry. The jury would come out and they would hug on, on the family and the victim and like they would attach to them. And that felt really good. But the first thing I realized is their life is still changed forever. Like they're still going to go to therapy. They're still going to have nightmares. It's still going to just mess with them the rest of their lives. So like, even though I did good, I didn't change the situation. I just kind of put as many pieces back together as I could. And the second thing that I realized is I would show up to work the next day because there are no breaks. Like I would try a case and it was like right back to trying, like getting ready for the next one. It's not like, you know, I get to take a two week vacation to, to refresh. And I would go back and I would see that 
in the meantime, I had like 10 to 15 new cases that were on my desk that were every bit as bad as the one I had just tried. And I got to a point where I said, I'm not solving the issue here. Like I can't change what's happening. Like it's, I'm just putting the piece back together. And so I started looking for what do I have to do in order to make the impact so there's less of these. And the only way to do that is from outside the system, not inside of it. And that's when I started to realize I needed to get out and go and do something different. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I mean, I can only imagine what that's like to experience that trauma and like so much of that work, you have to make sure you're taking care of yourself because you're, you're taking care of everyone else and doing everything you can, putting yourself under crazy pressure. You have to make sure that you're taking care of yourself during that time, because I can only imagine. Tell me more about how you fix these issues. I mean, I think a lot of people feel this way with their careers. They either are doing something that isn't as meaningful, but they don't have that trauma that they're carrying, or they're doing something so closely attached to their identity and so meaningful that it weighs on them. So like, where do you go from there? What, what is that middle ground if there is any? So how do we fix child abuse cases? How do we fix violent crime? Yeah. Well, if we look at the root of it, a lot of it comes from poverty, lack of access to resources, you know, immigration, like someone who's here illegally, who doesn't feel safe and has to live in a place and let people do things to them just because they don't have the ability to go to the police and get the same protection that other people do. And so when we look at that, a lot of that just comes from poor economic conditions that exist, poor after school care, poor education. And so how do we solve that? We have to solve those problems because that's what's going to ultimately drive those numbers down. So when I thought about that, it was put on the history hat again and look at throughout history, who has moved the world forward in meaningful ways? And there's always been some group, politicians, religious leaders, military leaders, social movement leaders. And when I looked at today's world, the people who are trying to address the biggest issues were founders, were people in this entrepreneurial world, were venture capitalists who were willing to spend huge sums of money to try to make it better. But when I looked at that, what I saw was a lot of great ideas with oftentimes poorly communicated visions of what they can be. And that's where I started to understand there was a gap. And I looked at my favorite speaker, which is JFK. And JFK had a advisor named Ted Sorensen who wrote his speeches, advised him, helped him navigate the, the moon speech, navigate the inaugural address, helped him navigate the Cuban Missile Crisis, all those things. And I said, I could be that type of person because communication, storytelling, and speaking, like that's the stuff I love. Like I can help these people who have the great ideas and have the ability to lead a team and build something. And then we can have this massive ripple effect because I can work with 10 founders who are all doing different things, solving different problems that go downstream. And along the way, the second piece of that is I have to also become wildly successful myself because with that success comes access and comes influence and comes money that you can pour into the right places so that we can make that shift in that world. And that really is what drove me to leave. Even though I love the work that I did, I knew that I could only solve it if I was outside of it. And granted, it's a, it's a heavy lift and I'm nowhere close to to achieving it yet. But that is really the North Star of what I saw in the world was so dark that I just, I love Lord of the Rings. Like I want that like light that Sam had that was able to, you know, scare the, the spider away and, and save Frodo. Like I want that light that is able to shine through the darkness. Yeah. And it sounds like what you did above all else was like identify what your unique strength was to solve this problem. Right. Because I think like so many people are just like, I'm going to start a company and we're going to tackle like economic inequality and that's what the company's going to do. Or like, I'm going to start a nonprofit and we're going to fund immigrant lawyers or whatever the thing is. Like they don't always think like, okay, wait, what's my top 1%, like you said, like my top 1% thing that is better than everyone else that I can now apply to this issue I care about. And I think not enough people think that way. They just go after the issue and they don't necessarily think about what are they uniquely good at. And so that led you obviously to start this, you know, competitive storytelling company where you help folks fundraise and tell their stories better so that they can tackle these issues. Like walk me through the process of deciding to start this company and going the route of fundraising and storytelling in that way, because there's so many, I mean, you could also have done like storytelling when it comes to just, you know, messaging on your website. You could do storytelling when it comes to being a marketing agency. You could do storytelling in many, many different ways. You could even be on the venture side, right? And like have that be your value prop for helping founders. So why start this 
basically fundraising storytelling agency the way that you did? Go where the biggest pain is and the biggest potential was kind of how I viewed it. And a lot of people can teach storytelling for like branding. A lot of people can teach storytelling for marketing purposes. They can teach storytelling for other people to get up on stage and become a public speaker. But my life was literally telling stories in a courtroom. 200 days a year, seven years, I lived in a courtroom and told stories and argued and won. So I knew how to do this in these highest stakes situations. So why would I go somewhere where there wasn't the biggest pain and there wasn't the biggest potential? Even though that means it's hard, right? Like that, it's hard to break into that because I didn't know anybody in venture. I didn't know anybody in tech. I didn't know founders. I lived in Dallas, Texas. I grew up in Houston. Like I was not connected. But I knew that if I did it right, there's a specific skill set that I have. Again, tying the storytelling piece with the trial lawyer because like I understand how to set a board in my favor. I understand how to think strategically in two five-year timelines because many of my cases were two or five years to work up to the point that I went to trial on them. And so if you understand how to set those pieces, well, then you, you can ultimately win that game, right? We studied a lot of neuroscience and psychology and game theory and all these different pieces because of, of where I worked, like I was very fortunate. So I didn't want to go somewhere where it, like where I could take advantage of people or I could certainly get paid, but it wasn't going to have a meaningful outcome. And so founders who are in the venture capital space, the reason venture capital is so exciting is because people are willing to spend large sums of money to go after moonshots, to go after like the biggest ideas that seem crazy, but if they work, are going to change everything. And I, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a history major and I always think about the Brunelleschi's dome. And I always think about Brunelleschi's dome being like one of the first forms of venture capital from the Medici's because they paid what, I mean, the sum of money that it would have been to actually build that is outrageous by modern standards. And yet when you go to Florence, Brunelleschi's dome still stands and draws so many people there to see that giant, beautiful dome that even today, modern architects and engineers don't know how they would do it using those tools. And to me, that's what we should be funding. Like those are the people, like the only way we really solve the stuff that I was seeing as a trial lawyer is for people to dream that big and to be that crazy. So I wanted to go and work with those people and tell stories and build worlds that were able to unlock huge sums of money so they could then go and take that risk and try to fly and try to build the next airplane, even though it seems highly likely that you're going to take off and, and fall flat and either get seriously hurt, you know, or, or something worse. And so that's the, the way that I got into this idea. And understanding that storytelling played a critical role in fundraising made sense to me because fundraising looks very similar to a trial. The different phases look very similar to jury selection, opening statement, producing evidence, and then closing argument. So I said, cool, this looks very similar. And this is the biggest pain point for founders. Like I can teach founders how to storytell, but what is the, what's the value? Like what's the ROI there? And from like a business mindset, I had to come up with a, here's an ROI for the work that we do. And so when you're raising $10 million, it's really easy to say, hey, here's the ROI. You get great at storytelling, understand how to use this in fundraising. And like the ROI is crystal clear. And now we can go out and really do work over multiple rounds and help them become that iconic story. Tell them, you know, like so many of the best in the world have done, the Nikes, the, the Apples, the Sarah Blakely's, you know, you, you name them, the ones who have really changed the world or, or made a meaningful impact. Like that's, that's why I said I wanted to go and work in the fundraising space specifically. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. And I think founders don't always realize that to get venture funding, you need to be a great storyteller. Like you can start a small business and that's amazing. And you can bootstrap that and build something great. But to build something that's venture funded, like you need to have the potential to 100x your idea. That's like the whole business model is just, I'm coming in at this valuation, it goes 100x. Otherwise, if it can only 10x, that's amazing, but you won't get venture funding. So I think people don't realize how much that the storytelling piece is actually a non-negotiable because they need to see the potential for the 100. So what is like, let's get into more of like the meat of your advice that you give to folks. Like what is the, the biggest fundraising mishap you see founders do? And it could be when they come to you and they say, hey, I'm like, feel like I'm doing it wrong. Or they have, you know, maybe not even started yet. And they just say, hey, what are the things they should be mindful of? But what's like the biggest, you know, thing you tell founders, hey, don't do this, or this will really mess things up? The biggest mistake I see is founders not talking about their founder story, which is wild to me. How many people just focus on the business? 
the business is a, is an extension of the founder and the business likely is going to pivot. Something is going to come up. The only thing that you can really bet on is, is how talented is the founder? Are they special? Do they have that drive? Do they have the deep passion? And yet I don't understand it. So many founders just, they're like, well, all the investor wants to hear is about the business. And that like business for all of eternity has been done between people. It's a relationship game. And the only way that I can build trust with someone is if I know who they are, right? Like there's a reason we don't just start me talking on the podcast, right? There's a reason you read my, my bio, even though like I don't love bios listening to them, like you're telling it so that people understand who I am as a person. So they are willing to listen to the interview. Well, if a founder comes in, they're like, well, here's what I'm building. And they don't like, we have no idea who they are. The frame is completely off. And there's no personal connection because I always think human conversations are greater than business conversations. And once we get into kind of that mindset, then we can get in the idea for the founder of you're not trying to sell yourself. You're just trying to be yourself. And when you are yourself, that shines through and that attracts the right investor to what you're doing. So that's kind of the first biggest mistake that I see. And then the, the second one is the way they tell the story of the company. Oftentimes it's way too logical in the way, well, we're going to do this and then 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 we're going to do this. And you're like, cool, it's like a 10 step path, but you're talking about five years in the future and you're telling me the 10 steps you're going to take. And I'm going to guess that most of those aren't going to come true because I don't know, a pandemic might pop up and all of a sudden supply chains are completely shot. And so if you try to get an investor to believe that your step-by-step -step is going to work, it's impossible. Instead, what we want to do is be more emotional when we like what I call emotional storytelling. And that's painting that big vision and then essentially just restructuring it, saying, here's the big vision and let me tell you what we're doing to get there. Like it's a little bit of a backwards and we're not filling in all the gaps. So I think a lot of founders try to go very logical because what they think an investor wants to hear, but we can't be logical about something in the future because it is uncertain. And we have to instead keep an investor in that emotional side, the imagination side where they're thinking themselves, wow, this could really work. That'd be really cool. You could do this. You could do this. You could do this. Like we want them taking ownership when we tell the story, not just like listening to my 10 step recipe that I'm reading for tonight's dinner and thinking, oh, I don't think step nine is going to work. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. I think one of the things that's coming to mind as you're talking about this is a lot of founders are very operational or very technical. And that's actually how they think. Like I know some people that are just incredible executors and incredible builders, and they maybe lack that more CEO tendency, which is very visionary and very like high level strategy. And so how do you get someone to not necessarily change who they are, but get them to have more of those CEO tendencies? So let's say there's like a super technical founder. They're very brilliant. They very much think in that 10 step recipe, like you were talking about, we're doing one, two, three, four, five, six. How do you get them to, to change how they talk about their company? I will just say this. I actually love working with technical founders because they're so open to feedback. If you give them feedback and you give them a plan, like they will just go and execute it, which is the, the most beautiful thing about it. Because just like you said, you give them this and they will just do it. And, and I've, I've seen some of the calls some of my technical founders have been on. And, and it actually makes me laugh because they're so rigid in following the game plan that I'm just like, oh, no, you didn't need to do it. Like you could have done that so much smoother. But they are just following it. And so when it comes to technical co-founder one or a founder, I always tell them, look, we can make the changes. We're not changing who you are. We're changing how you share the message. And so the first piece is if we have 10 steps, right? Let's, instead of telling 10 steps, let's condense it down into there's three phases of our approach to this. That way we're not giving so many specifics, so many details where someone's going to get lost. It still gives enough of a roadmap, but it's not overwhelming in the number of things that you have to agree with as an investor. Two, we just show them that you're saying the same thing, you're just structuring it different. And when you structure it different, go and test it. Because I always tell them this, like, don't just trust, don't just take my word for it, like, go tell it to somebody else and see how they respond to this other way of sharing it. And all of a sudden, they see that response because investors light up. And they're all of a sudden, they're like, they didn't just go silent. They weren't bored. They didn't end the call early. Hey, they were asking me a bunch of questions. They told me that we could do this, this, and this. And it's like, yeah, because you got them involved in a conversation. Like their imagination took over instead of just being bored and like watching paint dry, which is how many technical founders, unfortunately, pitch is like watching paint dry. Yeah. I think what you just said is so powerful too about having it be a conversation versus a pitch. And I'd love to hear your perspective on the timing of like 
How long should you be talking and sharing your vision? How long should you be asking and waiting for questions? Like, how do you think about it? Because I think a lot of the times, venture capitalists, angels, where everyone's human, they don't like to be talked at, right? And they want their imagination to run wild. Like you said, you want to give someone a little bit and that you want them to just run with it and be like, oh my gosh, what about this? And I connect you with this person and all that. So do you have any advice around like timing and how long you should talk without, you know, letting someone else interject or how long you should be pitching or sharing your story before? Like what is the, from a timing standpoint, do you have any rules of thumb that you advise founders on? Yeah, there's a a lot on timing and this whole topic. And one thing, I'll, I'll give an example of how I tell founders to think about this. You should think about sharing like Russian dolls. Where like you give them the first Russian doll and everyone gets what it is. Like we understand it's a Russian doll, but then it gives the person permission to say like, okay, can you go deeper there? And it's like, yeah, let me open up the Russian doll. And now here's Russian doll number two. And then you tell them a little bit more. And then they're like, wow, that's really interesting. Can you go on this? Like, can you go deeper here? And you're like, yeah, of course. Open up Russian doll number two. And here comes Russian doll number three. And they just keep going down level by level by level by level. Because you didn't try to give it all to them at the beginning. If you try to give it all to them, it's just overwhelming. It's confusing. It's chaos. Like we want it to be a conversation where that person naturally says, hey, that's super interesting. When you said this about your go-to-market strategy, have you thought about how that's going to affect this? It's like, cool, let me tell you about that. Like I did already think about that. I just didn't tell you about it yet. So that's kind of like the analogy I like to give of how to think about it. Again, this is very much comes down to building an argument. Like a, as a trial lawyer, what we did is we built arguments and we built these rabbit trails to take witnesses down, to map out our journey for the, the jury so that we knew exactly where we were going to take them at all times. Because you don't want to overwhelm them. I can't tell them everything out of the gate or else they're going to be checked out. So when it comes to timing... I like to think a good founder story is about three minutes typically. And I like to think a good vision story is about three minutes. That's kind of like a good rule of thumb, three minutes on each of those. But I always like to tell founders, it should be a conversation. If you're meeting an investor for the first time, it should not just be me talking about my story. The first thing I tell them is you should ask them like, hey, Erica, really great to meet you. You know, I've gotten to read some of your stuff. I, I really enjoyed the elephant piece that you put out the other day. But I would love to know more, like, can you tell me your story so I can get a little bit more understanding of like who you are as an investor and as a person? That'd be great to know. And then I'll share mine too. And the more, like I've literally watched calls where investors are like, that's so refreshing. No one ever asked me to, to share. Like, because most investors will tell like, yeah, let me give you my quick bio and they'll do the like boom, boom, boom bullet points. But like, if you really ask them to share their story, it's different. And then you share your story and then you go back and forth into questions and you ask them questions and they ask you questions and so at the end of the day, it, a good first meeting is, is pretty close to like a 50-50 split if you're doing it right. And, and if it's, you know, over-indexed where they actually speak more, great. Like you, you that, that's, that's wonderful. We don't want you speaking like 80% of the time. If you speak 80% of the time, you're just speaking at them and like that meeting is lost. See, I think what you just said there is like the secret nugget that everyone needs to hear. And more than anything too, having that conversation with the investor not only gets them interested, but helps you understand if they're qualified or not. It's just even like a time savings thing. Like you should have early questions of like, oh, and what do you invest in? What stage? Or like, how do you think about it? Oh, okay. Like, you know, I don't know if I'm a fit, but I actually have a friend who might be and kind of make it seem less like, oh my gosh, I'm begging for money and more like, oh, are we a match on both ends? You know? And I think, um, that approach of trying to make it 50, 50 is really refreshing. And a lot of people need to hear that. It's, it's power dynamics, right? It's yeah. going in and being like, yes, the investor has money, but you have a great company. Like you both have something to bring in. It always pains me when, when founders place investors on this pedestal and you're just like, you're the one who's going to go out and create the huge value. Like you're bringing something good. And then just treat them. One of my favorite pieces of advice. This is the most ludicrous thing. I, I've, I did not think this would become one of my favorite pieces of advice, but it really did. Founders will ask like, well, how should I approach this? I'm like, just be a normal human being. I know. And they will come back. I've gotten so many text messages from founders afterwards being like, that was the best advice you've ever given me. I'm like, that is the most basic, but, but it works. And sometimes we just forget that. It's just be a normal human being, like have a conversation, get to know each other, build trust, build relationship. And you know what? For some people, it's not going to work. Like you're not going to get along and that's okay. You can move on. Yeah. And it is, it's not supposed to work with everyone, right? Like that is literally the law of fundraising is like, you know, you're going to get 50 no's and one yes. So don't, you're not going to expect it to be a yes with everyone, but 
it's about finding that fit, like you said. So let's say there's people listening right now and they know that they need to fundraise in the next, let's say, three months to nine months or year. What do you think is a good plan for them to prep for that? So like, obviously there's folks like yourself who really help specialize for that, like run up to the fundraise. Um, a lot of people talk about like building a personal brand or putting content out there. Obviously you want to hit really solid metrics before, because that is really ultimately what matters a lot too. What is your advice for founders at, let's say, you know, the three month mark or the six month mark or the nine month mark, if you have anything that comes to mind and what's that pre-fundraise schedule you'd like to, to share with others? You should be having conversations with people like investors and founders who can potentially make intros for that round that's coming up. So like I always am thinking about how are you building out that kind of investor CRM and those warm intros that are going to get you into it. And that takes some effort and takes some time, but it really pays off nicely because you can predict the future in a lot of ways, right? You can talk to an investor and if you know you're going to raise in six months, you can talk to an investor and be like, here's where we're going. And then let's say when you go and kick off the fundraise six months later, you're like, yeah, you remember when we talked six months ago, like I told you, I was going to, we, we were going to hit 2.2 million ARR. We actually ended up at 2.3 million ARR. We, we exceeded what, what we thought we were going to do. So we're really excited about where we're at and like, here's where we're going next. Well, the moment you've done that, it's like, you've already given them a data point. You've proven that you matched it and in fact exceeded. So when you tell the next one, guess what? It's far more credible. And so we can predict the future ahead of time and set ourselves up for success that's kind of piece one. So build out that investor CRM, start building relationships, start talking to investors, talking to founders. People can make those intros to you. From there, you want to also think about like, what is a story that you're going to create and tell? Because you need to practice it some. Like you're not going to go into the first meeting and it'd be perfect. There's no chance. I mean, I remember the amount of time I spent, my poor family and friends, I would go get drinks with them and I would be like, hey, let me just run something by you. And I would just like go into my opening statement and I would just test it on them and they would give me feedback. And, you know, they got wise to this over time. So I would just like get better and better at sneaking it in where they weren't expecting it <laughs> and kind of force them to listen. But as a result, because I tested it so many times, like I knew what was working on different audiences and I got feedback of like what didn't make sense because something may make sense to me, but not to someone else. And that... Last case I ever tried was on the defense side where it was a murder case. And I believe that he acted in self-defense because he did kill his brother. And that case was, I tested that a lot because I gave the closing argument to keep him from going to prison for the rest of his life. And I had to like test that to a normal audience because I needed for them to give me feedback on how they saw my argument because I thought it made perfect sense. And what I found early on was what I was saying wasn't resonating with them because they didn't have all the knowledge that I had in my head from all the years of being a prosecutor. So I had to reformat my closing argument so that I could educate them as to why this was self-defense and put it in different terminology that they would be able to handle. And luckily that led to me trying that case and he was found not guilty of murder and went home, which was a crazy result in that case to be able to pull off, but it wouldn't have happened if I didn't practice. And the same is true for a founder. Like you've got to go practice your story. You've got to test it on people, including investors. Like you should test it on your current investors. You should test it on angel investors. You know, you should talk it on potential new investors. Although the timing of that really matters. So like that's really, you've got to be really smart with that. But if you start doing those two pieces, right? That goes a long ways. And the third piece is get your team ready to run the day to day while you go fundraise. I think that that's a really hard piece for a lot of founders to, to grapple with is when you're fundraising, you can either fundraise full-time or you can fundraise all the time. I would prefer you to fundraise full-time where you run a process and it takes you two to four months. And yes, you're still doing some business stuff, but you're really focused on the fundraise. Because if you're only partially focused on the fundraise, it's going to take you 12 months to do the raise. And then you're just like, you're constantly pulled in all these different directions. You're stressed out. You're not doing your best work. So the only way you can fundraise full-time is to get your team prepared. So that means your co-founder, your executive team, make sure they're really ready to take up the slack while you go fundraise so that they they know you're going to bring in the money and they're not stressed out as well. So I think those three things really set someone up for success when they go out to raise. Yeah, that's such great advice. And um, I think, you know, I hope everyone's taking notes while they're listening to that because I do think that is the foolproof way to do it. And hopefully you have multiple co-founders so you can have other people running the show. Kind of final thing on this that I wanted to ask you is just, there's a lot of, um, and I see this firsthand with, especially like, you know, at the A and the B when there is a little bit more of a team, 
fundraising is very emotionally exhausting and mentally draining to carry the burden of like these people's salaries and the future of the company and our previous investors. That's a lot to carry and it can really break founders, that pressure. Similar to, obviously, building a company isn't as intense as sending someone to prison forever, but, you know, similar to the burdens you carried when you were literally deciding this guy's fate. Do you have any advice around managing your mental health and separating somehow the burden of like the salaries of your team with the fundraise and like how it does, you don't let it paralyze you? Because I've seen founders really get so overwhelmed with the responsibility of it that they crack. And so I don't know if you have any advice there, if you've seen, if you coach founders through that, but I'd love to hear. I love that you bring up the the mental side of this because so much of fundraising is mental. Like the mindset you take in is going to determine how it goes because that's the energy you put out to investors. It's also going to change the way your voice comes out. Like when you're stressed or uncomfortable or nervous, your voice comes out lacking warmth and it's very dry and hollow. And it creates this sense of, I just don't feel something right here from an investor. And so if you don't have the head on straight, it becomes really challenging. So how do we deal with this, right? There's, everyone has different tools available to them and they need to find what those tools are that work for them. A lot of the founders that I work with, like we focus on a lot, take care of your, your health. Like you should be working out, even though it's gonna feel like you don't have time to do it. Like do something physical because that creates endorphins and just keeps your body healthy. And the healthier your body is, the easier it is to deal with stress. So like that's piece one. Obviously I'm an athlete. I, I a lot of athletes come and work with me. So like it's easier to, to get that into them. But the next piece I would say is like lots of meditation, visualization, breath work. Like I use something called mastery. Like I love it. It centers me through all the stress. And like I encourage the founders that I work with to use it as well. You can use others, but like that's just the one that I found very successful for me. Then I think it's a lot of, you know, some people need that outlet. So maybe it's a therapist, right, to talk to and navigate this. Like it's okay to feel stress. It's okay to feel a burden. Like I actually say that is a good thing because when you feel that stress and a burden, it forces you to stay focused and do the hard work it makes you a better fundraiser because there are real stakes. What you see sometimes is, is bad fundraisers. Oftentimes it's like someone's just kind of like, ah, it, it, like if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you're like, yeah, of course it's not working because there's no stakes to it. But I'll also say on the, the, the flip side of that, everybody who joins a startup understands that there's risk. Like everyone who's working in there, even a series A or series B understands there's risk when you join, like salaries and, and all that. And the founder cannot take on that full burden of like, if I fail, I failed everyone. Because that's just not fair to you. Like you're, you're doing everything in your power to succeed. And sometimes the circumstances just don't play out in your favor. And we need to, we need to accept that. But most people who are working, you know, co-founders, executives, even early employees at a, a startup are likely going to be able to find other work inside of the ecosystem because there's going to be a new startup or there's going to be another Series A or Series B company that you can leverage your skill set of being a co-founder in this one and go join that one as a chief revenue officer. We'll just throw out an idea. But so like you can also look at it that way. And then finally, I think the, the last piece is don't be afraid to decompress. Like it's okay to take a day off. I love grind and hustle. Like I'm a huge Kobe fan. Like I get that. Like I, I'm a big fan of like, you got to work hard to do stuff. Like you got to work smart, but you also got to work hard. Like there's a reason that if you can put in a hundred hours and it be high quality, like you're going to go further than someone who only puts in 40. But it's okay when you're in the middle of a fundraise sometimes to just like take a day, like go to the beach, go to the lake, go to the mountains, just read, do something that allows your brain to turn off and just reset. Just like a computer, when you run too many tabs and it gets overwhelmed and it starts, the fan starts whirring and going crazy and you think it's going to take off. Sometimes you just have to turn it off and turn it back on and everything is good again. And sometimes in the midst of a stressful fundraise, you got to do that too. Even though it's going to feel like I should grind, grind, grind. Sometimes taking a day off or two days off is the best thing for your fundraise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people need to hear it from someone like you that they have that permission, you know, that you've seen successful fundraises with that time off. Because I think there's so much fear and anxiety, especially for those early raises that people don't always give themselves that permission. But yeah, I really appreciate that advice. All right. Well, before we wrap, I have a final question for you. We ask all our guests this. 
you know, regardless of someone fundraising or not, they might be in law school, they might be a lawyer, they might be in med school, who knows? For any 20-something, what is that one piece of advice that you would give them? Look into the future of who you want to be. And I don't mean like a job, right? I mean the type of person that you want to be. What is that ideal version of yourself from a values, morals, impact, all those sort of things, fitness, relationship, all those things. And when you're in your 20s and looking forward like that, if you identify that, then you already know what that person is. Like you've already created that future version of yourself. So we know that person already exists out there because you've been able to see them. And now you just have a lens to make decisions throughout the rest of your life to get to that point of this is in alignment with that person that I've already seen. And I love this from Arnold Schwarzenegger in his most recent documentary. He said he always had this superpower from a very early age. If he could see it in his mind, he knew that he could make it come true. And I think that's the biggest thing that I wish that I knew earlier and would have made a bigger difference for me. I'm happy with where I got and I do this exercise now, but I wish I would have been doing it in my teens and 20s because it would have made all the difference. So see who you want to be and then work to become that person. I love it. And even having that lens of like, do I do this? Do I not? What would that person think? What would they want? Robbie, thanks so much for being here. This was so much fun. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on socials? And um, if they want to work with you on their fundraising or ask you questions, where should they learn more about competitive storytelling? They can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I post the most content, uh, lots of stuff on storytelling, video breakdowns, all sorts of stuff that you can learn from. Uh, you can just search my name, Robbie Crabtree. I'll, I'll pop up, I promise. You can also follow me on Twitter, Robbie Crab. I'm not as active on Twitter, but I am there. And then from a fundraising perspective, if you want to, you can certainly go to founderfundraising.com, which breaks down kind of the way that we work with everybody and who we work with and all those sort of things. And then at the end of August, you should also be able to find the book, Competitive Storytelling, which goes into a lot of the actual stories from my career as a trial lawyer, using that as a lens and then showing how to use those principles to become a great storyteller yourself. And so I, I hope people will read that. And, and it's, it's a great insight into how to become a world-class storyteller and ultimately a great fundraiser and then a great founder. I love it. I love it. Well, by the time that this episode comes out, the book will be out. So people can go get it online or probably at their local bookstore. Robbie, thanks for being here. This was super fun. Thanks, Erica. This was great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.